That is who you are. The Holy One. King of kings. Lord of lords. High and lifted up. The worthy one. That is who you are. And you are here. So we continue our worship of you by opening up your word. And we pray that you would inform us and that you would transform us by your spirit. So that more and more we would become the men and the women and the children that you designed us to be. We pray this in the name of Jesus, our King. Amen. Well, I'm guessing you're not going to be able to guess which image of the church I'm going to be preaching on today. It's a fairly obscure image. I'm not thinking you're going to come up with it. There are about 80 different pictures of the church, metaphors of the church in the New Testament. So anybody have a guess? A football team. Yeah, not close. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I didn't think you'd be able to come up with it. So let me tell you. We're talking today about the church as saints. Now, when you hear the word saints, what's the image that comes to your mind? Is it perhaps this image? This picture of St. Drew and the religious order that he leads in New Orleans? You know, it's interesting. If you Google the word saints, plural, the first 120 images or so that pop up are of a group of men who are dressed from neck to toe in black who all have gold halos, well, gold helmets that they're wearing, and they've all got numbers on their chest. Or maybe this is what comes to your mind. A spiritual superhero. This one happens to be St. Francis, uh, who was the head of a religious order in Assisi, Italy. And it's interesting that, according to Wiktionary, at least, the primary definition of the word saint is it's a person whom a church or a religious group of some kind officially recognizes as especially holy or godly. So if you Google the word saint, this is what shows up. The first hundred plus images are people wearing robes and halos, looking pious and ethereal. What's interesting is that for most of us, what doesn't come to mind when we hear the word saints is us, the church. Not just the really devout and really godly ones among us, but all of us who are followers of Christ. Did you know that the word saint is actually one of the most common terms for the church in the New Testament? It's used to describe the church at the beginning of 1 Corinthians, the beginning of Philippians, the beginning of, of Ephesians, the beginning of Colossians. For example, here's how 1 Corinthians starts. To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Saint shows up in lots of places throughout the New Testament. In fact, the word saint is used 62 times in the New Testament, and in every case, it is synonymous with Christian believers, with the church. So why don't we associate the word saint with the church as a whole? Probably because in most Bibles, the word isn't even there anymore. Modern translations like the New International Version and the New Living Translation, both great translations, 
have completely removed the word saint from the translation because they believe that the word in English, as the Wiktionary definition suggests, that the word in English has shifted in its meaning from what it originally was intended to communicate. So they've tried to find different ways to capture the same idea. So what is behind? What does the word saint mean? Well, it means holy one. Saint is a translation from the Greek word root that means holy. But now here we run into a, another unique translation challenge. And it's an unfortunate one. And that is that in English, we have several different word families for this single Greek word idea and root. So the English words saint, sanctify, sanctification, sanctuary, consecrate, holy, and hallow are all words that are translations of this one basic word root. So even though the idea of holiness and this word, holy, appears in some form more than 275 times in the New Testament, making it one of the most important ideas in Scripture, its importance gets lost in our English translation. And I think that also leads us to misunderstand what holiness really is. So what does holy mean? How would you define the idea of holiness? I think for most of us, Holiness means living within morally exact boundaries. We think of holiness as a sort of grid for right behavior. It's the tool that we use to decide which movies not to watch. Because we think of holiness primarily in terms of boundaries, we tend to frame holiness in negative terms. Being holy means having a list of lines we won't cross and words we won't say and things we won't do. Think of the Ten Commandments. It's it's a bunch of thou shalt nots. Don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't lie, don't steal, don't covet. But defining holiness in terms of boundaries, in terms of moral exactitude, is like defining the Indy 500 by the paint stripe on the inside of the track and the guardrail on the outside. There is so much more to it than that. It's like defining cooking in your kitchen by the apron that you wear. So what is holiness when we think of it in positive terms? The word picture that lies at the root of holiness is the idea of separation. A separation from the realm of common things and everyday life. So it captures the idea, conveys the idea of distinctiveness. When the word is used to describe God, his holiness is what makes him distinct from everything else that exists. His greatness and goodness as God. His perfection morally and in every other way. Did you know that the word holy is used as a prefix for God in Scripture more than any other adjective? God the Father is described as holy in a ton of places, like Isaiah 57, 15. Thus says the high and exalted one who lives forever, whose name is holy, I dwell in a high and holy place. God the Son is described in multiple places as holy. One example, John chapter 6, verse 69. Peter says to Jesus, we believe and know that you are the holy one of God. And God the Spirit is described as holy so often that we think of holy as his first name. John chapter 14, verse 26, 
Jesus promises his followers that after his departure, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all these things. So when the word's used to describe God, it captures all that makes him distinctive from and higher than all the rest of existence. When the word is used to describe human beings, holiness also has to do with separateness and distinctiveness. But for us who start out far from holy, holiness captures a motion and then a result. The motion of holiness is to separate us out from what is ordinary or common, to set us apart and to place us in a sacred realm that is defined by the presence and purposes of God. So this motion implies a claim on us. We're not just in God's realm, we belong to it. We belong to him, to the one who is the king of the realm. We are his. And here's the result of that motion. When I am gathered up out of the domain of the ordinary and brought over into God's extraordinary realm, then I will become distinctive. And that's true in two ways. I will live more and more in contrast to my previous realm and more and more in conformity with my new realm. So when we talk about this idea of separation as being the essence of holiness, it is crucial for us to notice this. The separateness that stands at the heart of holiness is not so much removing us from what is unholy, but removing from us what is unholy. To say it another way, as a result of the motion of holiness, I will be drawn out from a world where I blended in. And I will be brought over into a realm where, at least initially, I won't fit in. I'll stand out. But then I will begin to undergo a sanctifying process, which means literally a being made holy process. So that more and more, I will blend into that new realm with the result that more and more I will stand out from the, the realm that I once was part of. So these two ideas, contrasting with an old way of life, conforming to a new way of life, appear together in virtually every passage of Scripture in which the idea of holiness is discussed. The book of Ephesians talks about saints and holiness more than almost any other book in the New Testament. Listen to how it captures this separating motion of holiness and the less like this, more like this distinctiveness that results from it. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 22 to 24 says this. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. It's really interesting to notice this. The New Testament uses lots of different words to describe what we are being changed from. Impurity, hardness of heart, darkened understanding, evil desire, and sins of all sorts. But it uses just one primary image to describe what we are being changed to. Listen again to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 24. Put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. 
That same idea is echoed a little bit later in Ephesians in verses in chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, where it calls us to be imitators of God as his dearly loved children. And to live a life of love just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. This same idea of, of a likeness with God or imitating God stands at the center of 1 Peter and its call upon our lives to a life of holiness. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 15 and 16. Just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all that you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. So to sum all of this up, as Jerry Bridges writes in his classic book, The Pursuit of Holiness, God has not called us to be like those around us. He has called us to be like himself. Holiness, says Bridges, is nothing less than the conformity to the character of God. So boiling all of that down, holiness is a motion that removes us from the realm of fallen and lost humanity and brings us over into the kingdom, into the realm that is defined by the presence and purposes of God. And in that process, we are transformed and we are made distinctive as citizens of that realm by being made more and more like the king of that realm. So with that understanding of what holiness is all about, let's go back to where we started. What does it mean that every member of the church is called a saint, a holy one? From the newest unformed Christian to the most mature and godly follower of Christ, we are all in such different places in our progress toward holiness. How can we all be called holy ones? This takes us right into the heart of the mystery of God's redemptive work in our lives. The Christian life begins when we believe and follow Jesus. We trust Jesus as rescuer, and we entrust our lives into his care and under his rule as his followers. That's what it means to be a Christian. Now, according to Scripture, here's what happens the moment we trust Jesus and entrust our lives to him. At that moment, because of the work of of the Son of God, we are declared holy in the sight of God. Through his death on the cross in our place, the righteous for the unrighteous, Jesus secures our forgiveness and he reconciles us to God. Through his resurrection, we rise up with him and we are given holy standing before God. God sees us through the holiness and through the sacrifice of Jesus and it is as though we had never sinned in God's eyes. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 10, captures this perfectly. It says, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And our, that's, that's the moment when we're handed our jerseys, when we are declared to be saints. And our response to that, of course, is to live in the joy and the freedom of forgiveness and to enjoy ever-deepening intimacy with God for eternity. There's more to it. At that same moment of faith, the Spirit of God takes up residence in us and begins his work in us, which is to make us holy in reality and not just in standing. In Romans chapter 1, verse 4, the Holy Spirit is actually called the Spirit of Holiness. And for good reason, because he isn't just the one who is holy, he is the one who makes holy. As it says in Philippians chapter 2, verse 13, it is God who is 
producing in you both the desire and the ability to do what pleases him. The Holy Spirit makes us holy. But this doesn't happen automatically. We have to cooperate with his work. It is so important that we understand that the extent of our holiness is directly related to the extent to which we are saying yes to the work of the Holy Spirit within us. Holiness requires our hard work, the difficult and painful work of self-scrutiny and scripture study and confession and invitation and cooperation with the transforming work of the Spirit. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14, make every effort to be holy. Without holiness, no one can see the Lord. And 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1, since we have these promises, dear friends, let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit, perfecting holiness out of reverence for God. So this is God's invitation for us as saints. Jerry Bridges writes, God has called every Christian to a holy life. There are no exceptions to this call. So let's turn now to the really practical. How does this pursuit of holiness play out in real life? I asked Maria Pritchett if she would be willing to share with us some of how she has wrestled with that question. Maria, thank you. So David asked me how I pursue holiness in my life, what that looks like, what temptations I face. And as I thought about my experience um, and where I'm at in trying to pursue conforming to the character of God, um, one major area where I thought, oh, this is difficult, this is something I'm working on, is my attitude towards grad school and how I talk with colleagues at Purdue. Um, So I think one temptation that's often there for me is to grumble, as there's just a lot of bitterness and exhaustion in grad school culture. And there's often a lot of things to be annoyed about, whether it's the work, the classes, the research, the demands of advisors. Um, And for grad students, I think often the easiest way to connect is to share those grievances with each other. Um, But there's a scripture that encourages a very different attitude. So I'm going to read Philippians 2, 14 through 16. Do everything without grumbling or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. So I've been thinking about what does it mean to genuinely hold on to the love and joy of Christ in my heart? Um, And how do I share that without being annoyingly callous or optimistic? Um, And I think the first step for me has been to find God-honoring ways of sharing my frustrations. Um, So choosing who I go to when I want to complain and going to Christian friends and my spouse who will listen to me, but then who will gently push me to resolve those issues, um, and especially who will um, push me to address things, to make peace, um, rather than to gossip about people or just be angry about things. Um, And so this helps me in setting my heart again on the goodness of God and letting his goodness to me shape how I respond. Um, And I think part of the outer expression of that when I'm learning to do this well is how I respond to others' woes. Um, So one thing I can offer is empathy when people start complaining rather than saying, oh, oh, I have problems too, um, to be able to genuinely listen and respond. 
Um, and then when they're a brother or sister in Christ, um, to push the conversation deeper than the daily concerns to, okay, where do we see God in that? Um, or what does it mean to follow God when things are stressful? Also, sometimes with friends who aren't Christians, it's helpful just to direct the conversation outside academia um, and getting to know people as people rather than bonding over the things that are happening in our grad schools. Um, and the last thing, thinking about pursuing holiness this semester especially, another area that I haven't figured out as much how I want to grow in or how I should grow in is remembering God's heart for the people outside my circles. Because um, I've been at Purdue for four years now. I've been in this church for four years. And I have my people at church, at Purdue, and I love them. And it's easy to fill up all my emotional and my social bandwidth just hanging out with those people who I enjoy and who are good for me. Um, but God's call to seek out the stranger, um, to advocate for the sick, the oppressed, the widow, the orphan, those are still true. Um, and those are still things that I'm called to do as I pursue being like Christ. So I think that's an area of holiness where I'm not sure what that's going to look like and where I'm kind of seeking answers, um, especially for this semester. So that's my thoughts. I love those insights, Maria. Thank you. Really rich. So holiness, um, as I think uh, Maria alluded to, has an inward-facing part and uh, an outward-facing part to it. The internal part of holiness has to do with the desires and the motivations that define our heart and inform the way that we relate. And then the external part of holiness is the specific choices that we make about things like what sort of humor we'll use and how much alcohol we'll drink and, and what sort of language will come out of our mouths. So what I want to do now as a way for us to just grow in our own awareness of the work that God may be wanting to do in our own lives is to contrast two counterfeit versions of holiness with the real thing. Each one of these is missing one or the other of those two crucial facets. So I, could, I guess you could call these half versions of holiness, halfiness instead of holiness. Uh, so let's look at these two versions of halfiness. And here's what's true as we do this, and you know this. None of us has arrived in the holiness department. We all fall short of both facets of holiness to a certain extent. Even people that we revere, like Paul Sims and Joanne Kuypers and Sharon Henderson and, and Rob Iman, people that we recognize as being incredibly godly and devout people. We all fall short of God's character and God's holy standards. But I think each of us has a propensity or a temptation to lean in one of two directions. So see if you recognize yourself in one of these versions of happiness. So one type of happiness is what you could call hollow holiness. This kind of holiness is more concerned with external behavior than with the motivations of the heart. This is a 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 17, come apart from them and be separate sort of holiness. Like the Pharisees that Jesus addressed in Matthew chapter 23, this group sees two basic categories of humanity, the holy ones of whom they are a part, and the unholy ones, which is the rest of the world from whom they try to distance themselves. The greatest fear of this group is being lumped together by their Christian friends into that unbelieving world, or being tainted in some way by the sin and the impurity of that world around them. 
They have a highly developed sense of moral dignity. And as a result, when they relate to people in the world, they can be perceived as being sanctimonious or holier than thou. That can be experienced by the people of the world as a lack of genuine love and acceptance, which is reserved only for those whose behavior is considered acceptable. And it can be experienced as indignation and judgment instead of love and acceptance. The other type of happiness is what we could call hidden holiness. This is, those who are in this group are more concerned with conforming their hearts to the heart of God than with any specific moral choices that they make. And as a result, they can end up looking a whole lot like the world around them. This is a 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 12. What business of mine is it to judge those outside the church? Are we not to judge those inside sort of holiness? Like the Nicolaitans that John addresses in Revelation 2, this group downplays the importance of moral behavior and argues that Christ-like faith and love are really all that are necessary. The greatest fear of this group is being lumped together by their non-Christian friends with that unloving church. And as a result, they relate to the church and talk about it with cynicism and criticism and a spirit of judgment. And to the world around them, they relate with choices about things like language and dress and humor and entertainment choices and sexuality and alcohol use in ways that are sometimes indistinguishable from the world. So the world experiences them as one of their own, inclusive, accepting, loving, but suggesting through the way they live their lives no real alternative. Do you see yourself in either of those temptations? If you wonder which direction you may lean, it may be a really interesting exercise for you to go to a neighbor or to a, a teammate or a coworker or a fellow student with whom you've been trying to build a relationship and ask them to be honest with you about how they see you as a Christian. Do they experience you as judging them, as accepting them, as blending in with them? I think it could lead to a really interesting conversation. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17 to chapter 5, verse 21 is a great study on how both of these facets of holiness, the inward-facing and the outward-facing dimensions, how they come together. And I would really encourage you to go back after this message and read that section, Ephesians 4, 17 to 521. It says, on the one hand, externally speaking, it describes relating without coarse language or crude joking or slanderous put-downs or sexual innuendo or drunkenness. It describes walking in a way that both honors and builds up others and pleases and reflects God. That's the sort of life that we are called to externally. And then woven together with that and indivisible from it internally, it describes our having a heart of true righteousness and holiness like God and of kindness and tenderheartedness and forgiveness like Jesus and of love and self-sacrifice toward others like Jesus. So from a biblical perspective, it turns out that holiness and Christ-likeness are exactly the same thing. 
which is much more exciting and compelling as a pursuit than merely living within the boundaries of moral exactitude. So what does it look like to be holy? What does it mean to be a saint? I think it looks a whole lot like this. Think about how Jesus related to the world. On the one hand, we see Jesus out in the midst of the world, loving and accepting everyone apart from their moral choices. You may remember Matthew chapter 11, verse 19, which says, the Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, well, here is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and of sinners. But wisdom is proved right by her deeds. So here Jesus is in their midst, condemning no one. Remember, he says to the woman caught in adultery, neither do I condemn you. He goes on as a son of man to invite her to walk away from her life of sin, reflecting the presence of acceptance and holiness at the same time. In Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 and 15, we're reminded that Jesus, the Son of God, has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. Jesus didn't get welcomed at the table by lost people because he acted like the rest of the people around the table. When his divinity was revealed, no one around that table would have said, dude, no way, you're the son of God? Those racy jokes that you told, those, the number of, of flights of beer that you could put away, you sure had me fooled. Jesus' life was uncompromisingly distinctive. Calls us to the same. Jesus wasn't welcomed because he acted like them. He was welcomed because he was welcome, welcoming and accepting of them. He didn't live his holy life as an accusation against them. He just loved them. Romans chapter 15, verse 7 says, Accept one another then, just as Christ accepted you in order to bring praise to God. So what does it look like to be holy? What does it look like to be a saint? 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18 says, And we who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory are being transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So when we cooperate with the work of the Spirit inside of us, being a saint will also look a whole lot like this. This is a painting by Joe Barry Carroll that's called Mr. Fred. It is a gorgeous piece of art that's part of an exhibit that's currently on display at the Lafayette Art Museum. This is a painting of Joe's father, who he describes as the first person from whom I ever experienced kindness and tenderness, and as a man who always anticipated his son's every need and went out of his way to see that his son was safe and comfortable and well-fed and loved. Now, I don't know where Joe Carroll comes from spiritually, but as I look at this painting, I think that Carroll is saying that when he looked at his father, he saw two people. His dad, dressed to the nines, 
in a fedora and a parade jacket, and Jesus. Suggested by the use of gold leaf all across the backdrop of the painting, and the intermingling of two different sets of facial features in the face, and the hint of a halo and the form of a cross. When people look at you, what do they see? When people look at you, who do they see? How would the people around you paint your portrait? Pray with me. Lord, you have declared us holy by the work of Jesus on the cross. Now, Lord, make us holy. Form the likeness of your Son in us. Because we know that holiness is Christ in us. So we say yes to you. Whatever is that work that you want to do, we say yes to you. Lord, we need you.